0: I'm Seattle Times political reporter, Jim Bruner.
1: And I'm Seattle Times City Hall reporter, Dan Beekman.
0: Let's talk politics.
1: Welcome to episode 71 of The Overcast, the Seattle Times Weekly Politics Podcast.
0: This week, we're joined by Todd Myers, director of the Center for the Environment at the Washington Policy Center. The Washington Policy Center is a Free Market or Conservative Think Tank based in Bellevue. Todd is a an expert on free market environmental policy. He's the author of the book Ecofads: How the Rise of Trendy Environmentalism is harming the environment. Previously, he worked at the State Department of National Natural Resources, and before that, he worked for the Seattle SuperSonics and the Seattle Mariners. Thanks for joining us, Todd. Yeah, thank you for having me on. So this is a bit of a follow-up to last week. Last week, of course, we had on Kristen Eberhard from the Sightline Institute to talk about the carbon tax proposal in in the Washington legislature. Since we had that conversation, I think that bill has taken one more step, passing the Senate Ways and Means Committee. Correct. Correct. So where does it stand? What are you hearing about its prospects? And then let's get into some of the
2: nitty gritty on what you think of the bill, because you've had some criticisms of it. So yeah, it's uh, currently it's out of the Ways and Means Committee. And in rules, that's largely a formality. I mean, essentially, it, um, uh, if they decide to move it forward, it will move out of rules very easily and onto the Senate floor. But it hasn't yet. We just have about a week left. So there's not a lot of time because it still has to go to the House. Um, so the prospects, I think, um, are dim but not dead. Um, and it's because there's a lot of pushback. And, you know, remember that the Um, Democrats have a one-seat majority in each chamber. So they have to get everybody on board. And I think that's very difficult, um, especially on a very controversial uh, issue like this.
0: And let's talk about some of your criticisms of it. You've written some pieces for the Washington Policy Center. For example, one headlined, carbon tax bill won't meet promised CO2 targets. So the state has set in statute actually goals, goals to reduce overall CO2 emissions below, I think, 1990 levels. We're not on track, I think, to meet that. And you said that the carbon tax bill actually
2: wouldn't Won't meet be, that either. That's correct, yeah. Tell me a little bit more about that. So, you know, just to be clear, I, I think that, you know, we. Uh, I was generally supportive of Initiative 732 two years ago, which was a revenue neutral version, actually it was a slight tax cut. Um, the concerns about that, because the tax um, laws in Washington State are so complex, is that at the end of the day, some people would see tax increases that we didn't want to see tax increases. And so just getting the balance right is just difficult, even if you agree with the policy. So um, I'm happy to have policies that reduce CO2, that make us more efficient. I think this policy has been done in the worst way possible, which is that Um, There are a huge number of carve-outs and protections and handouts to different organizations, not only industry, uh, but also special interest groups. There is an actual board called the Environmental Justice Panel that is set up, a member of union members and other special interest groups. And that, has, and that sets rules about what environmental justice is. And then that's been applied throughout the bill. So all of the expenditures in the bill have to meet the restrictions or the, the whatever the environmental justice panel comes up with. And so if you go through the numbers and you say, OK, here's what we're spending and here's what's being siphoned off for all these other special interest groups, what money do we have left over and how are they going to spend that? And what you find is, is that there's not enough money left over actually to do what the bill says it's going to do, which is cut carbon reduction or uh, cut CO2 emissions. And so that is what has happened. In order to get the bill passed, they've had to give out so many freebies to so many different groups to get them on board that the bill doesn't do what it claims anymore.
1: Is the point of the bill not to use pricing to accomplish those goals rather than the revenue? Correct. So um, you had Senator Carlyle
2: on, who was one of the prime authors of it, and he said he doesn't believe that pricing works, right. that pricing is the way that you get people to reduce CO2 emissions or to become more efficient, that the key is you have to have government spending, and the spending has to be on projects that reduce CO2 emissions. So that's fine. Let's assume that's correct. I think that's wrong, but let's assume that's correct. What the bill does is says, okay, you can spend up to $100 to reduce one metric ton of carbon. That is extremely expensive. Right now, I can get on the internet and spend $10 and help fund a project that would reduce carbon emissions for $10, okay? So this is a a metric of how effective you are in achieving environmental benefits, and what this bill allows is essentially to spend $10 to get $1 worth of environmental value. And just to drill down a little bit,
0: what what does the bill contemplate actually spending that money on that, that would,
2: to some extent, reduce carbon? Well, it has a long list of things that are possible. And then what people do is they apply for grants and say, here's what we're going to do. But there are some real, there are some ideas in there that are essentially make no difference whatsoever. So utilities are essentially carved out. They don't have to pay the tax. They collect the tax, but then they can use the tax in however they want to But they have to claim that they're they're cutting emissions. And so, for example, one of the things that it says they can do is help people buy electric vehicles or put electric car charging stations into homes. That is extremely inefficient because the people who can afford a Tesla or even a Nissan Leaf tend to be the people in the top 10% of earners. In other words, they would have purchased this car anyway because, frankly, Teslas are cool cars. Right? Leafs are very comfortable cars. They're not, you know, they're not a Tesla, but they're still very comfortable luxury cars. And if you can afford one, you don't need a government subsidy. And what we found is, is that the state actually waived sales taxes for electric vehicles. We scaled that back a couple years ago, and the total number of electric vehicle sales actually went up not because they lost the sales tax, I'm not arguing that, but because the people who are buying electric cars are so price insensitive, it made no difference. So if a utility is spending taxpayer money, ratepayer money, to put in electric car charging stations, all they're doing is subsidizing the rich and getting no environmental benefit for it. That's the kind of thing that this bill allows that makes it so that they can't meet the targets.
0: You, you mentioned all the carve-outs and we talked about this some um, last week too, you know, aerospace, or um... You know, airplane fuel, I think, is is um, exempt. Some other things.
2: Um, Space, t- SpaceX. SpaceX. Two, two days after they did the launch, which was very cool, uh, the SpaceX uh, exemption was added. I don't think SpaceX asked for it, but I think people remembered, oh, that's right. They're based in Redmond, aren't they? We ought to add them into the bill as well. So there's well, lots of exemptions. Yeah, I actually
0: think that they, they may have some pretty good lobbyists, too, but I don't know what happened there. But, you know, you've seen the legislative sausage making over the years. There's an argument to be made that that it's important enough for Washington to start imposing a carbon tax we would be the first state right. to do so right and that you could maybe tinker with it and fix it later if you wait for the perfect policy from anyone's perspective you're probably going to get nothing should
2: should the state have carbon pricing of some kind sure i think that's i think that's fine i mean my position is that if you have pollution the, the best one, one of the best ways to deal with that is simply put a price on it and let people figure out how to deal with that price. Prices are very effective. Despite what Senator Carlisle says, we see that prices are very effective in encouraging people to change behavior. Regulation is the worst way. It is the most expensive and least effective way. So if you're going to address CO2 or other pollution, then putting a price on it is a very good way. And let me make clear, with the exemptions, there are a lot of exemptions for what are called... Um, <clears throat> uh, energy-intensive trade-exposed industries. The, a lot of people are saying, oh, my God, look at the corporations. They're cut out of this, and the, the price is paid by you and I. Well, the price was going to be paid by you and I anyway because they were going to pass it along. There actually is a good reason to carve those folks out because what you don't want is an aluminum plant in Washington State closing down and moving to China. So I think the exemptions have a good side and a bad side. The good side is is that they recognize the impact of those taxes. The bad side is, is that the way that this bill has been written is lobbyists on steroids. So you not only take the people that are good, right, the industries that have a justification, but then everybody else says, well, wait a minute. You carved that guy out. How about giving me a little something-something? And that's what you see. That's why the bill has gone from you know 10 pages,
1: which is what it takes to do a revenue-neutral carbon tax, to 75. So whether the intent of the pricing is for pricing in and of itself or to raise revenue. And you're saying that Senator Carlisle has said, you know, he thinks that the the revenue is the important thing, right? But it still is pricing. So why wouldn't that be effective in this case? Well, I think the pricing will help,
2: right? I mean, I think clearly raising the price of CO2 with a gas tax and on natural gas home heating will help, right? I mean, or we'll say it will have an impact. The problem I have is, is that, it becomes one more tax, one more burden on people. What I want is to have a level playing field so that, you know, yesterday we didn't have a carbon tax, today we do. Your tax bill is the same today as it was yesterday. You just have slightly different incentives because what I don't want is to harm people. I I want to achieve the goal. The goal is to be more energy efficient to reduce carbon emissions. What I think that this bill does is it says, well... You know, we want to reduce carbon emissions, but increasing the size of government is also very important. Two years ago in 732, Naomi Klein, who's a national activist on climate change, opposed 732. And one of my favorite lines was she says, A revenue neutral carbon tax leaves the government with nothing. Right? She's putting government ahead of carbon, of climate action. And I think that's where this bill has ended up. And we did see, as as I mentioned,
0: I think last week, what I would refer to as largely the Democratic Party coalition of labor unions, Democratic Party groups, and others did oppose Initiative 732 right. for that revenue neutral thing. And they, they also pointed out, by the way, there were, there were some issues with the way they, they constructed that initiative, that there were estimates that it actually would um, cut the state budget in the early years anyway. So there was all, there were all kinds of problems and discussions uh, you mentioned the lobbyist of Palooza that helped maybe write this bill. Of course, I guess we could file a public records request and uh, see all those communications. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Yeah, that's been in the news too. <laughs> Todd, I did want to ask you about, um, you know, you you've been for policies like a revenue neutral carbon tax. There are some other conservatives who have argued, you know, the business case even, or the conservative case you've seen for a carbon tax. By and large though, the more conservative party, the Republican Party, has outright opposed all of this. Right. The business community, the biggest business association in the state anyway, never got on board with the revenue neutral carbon tax. There are people out there who deny that there's a problem, or, or, or at least they don't rank the problem high enough that they would be willing to pay any more money to do anything about it. Is that a, you know, do you levy criticisms at that side of of government too in that side of the political spectrum, the Republicans?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I tell them, when I speak all the time, people will always ask me, okay, so what's, what's the real science behind climate change? And I tell them, look, we, we know that we can measure very easily that CO2 and methane and other greenhouse gases get into the atmosphere and infrared radiation that would go back out into space now gets kept in the system, which tends to increase temperature over time. The challenge that we have is understanding how serious a problem that is. That's where the debate is but what you see on both sides is exaggerations designed to help their case the conservatives are are critiqued for being deniers right i mean that they that they say it's all a hoax and i've heard people say this and i tell people don't say that it's not a hoax
0: well some of them are you've had a us senator hold up a snowball
2: on the floor of the that's exactly you know, right the senate but but on the other side you also get people like al gore saying that more snow is evidence of climate change which is of course totally wrong which i mean right goes against the what the theory is. And so they make a lot of things up. And so for all the critique you can have of people who say that climate change has zero impact, you should also have critique of people on the left who wildly exaggerate, who say that we're gonna see, you know, eight to 10 degrees Fahrenheit increase. Zillow had this little study that they put out where they said, oh my God, we're gonna see eight feet of sea level rise by 2100. Well, actually, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says it's going to be 18 inches, one and a half feet, and that the top end is about three to four feet. So Zillow came up with a study that said, well, here's twice what the maximum projection would be. So you see exaggerations on both sides designed to achieve a policy objection, and that's what I think the thing that when I talk to conservatives, the reason they – say oh climate change is a hoax or it's not real or other things like that is because what they're afraid is is that the minute they say the science is real it's a trojan horse for big government and bills like this and quotes like Naomi Klein's help them believe that because what it says is climate change is just an excuse to do big government and and we don't believe in big government
1: so the, you know that's some of the 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 politics uh, down in Olympia as well, and you mentioned at the outset that you think the prospects of the bill, you know, it's still alive, but you think the prospects are dim of it getting passed in the next week. If it doesn't get passed, then there's going to be uh, an initiative campaign. Undoubtedly. What do you think that's going to look like uh, in the months to come?
2: Well, I think that you're going to take this bill. I think you're going to take some of the carve-outs out of that bill um, because they're The environmental community is intentionally trying to make that bill sound scary and extreme to get people to vote for this bill. Um, I also think that they feel like that they, you know, have the balls on their court. And so they're going to have backing from people like Tom Steyer in California and other folks to try to get that. So they feel like they're going to have enough money to run the bill that they want, and they're going to go for it. The problem with that, of course, is that I constantly hear people say, we can't wait. We can't wait to act on climate change. But then when it comes to actually crafting something that will pass, that will take a step forward, even if it's not the full step they want, they don't do that. They don't go halfway. They want to go all the way. It's all or nothing. And if we can't wait, they would not take that position. So that's why sometimes I'm, you know, I I think that there are some criticism that is justified for conservatives who are skeptical on some of these issues. But I think there is a lot of criticism that we are not, that people don't openly say about the environmental community where they don't live up to their rhetoric. You've also written and you just discussed
0: that, you know, Governor Inslee is is sort of exaggerating from your point of view, the threats to Washington state. You had a piece that said, Senate Bill 6203 to impose a carbon tax, exaggerated environmental threats are out of balance with the bill's high cost. I mean, what did you specifically mean by that? Because if you look at the global picture, it's a very serious threat, isn't it? And it, and it trickles down to, to everything in Washington State from forest health to, you know, rising sea levels or whatever the level might be. Do you really think it's fair to say that it's exaggerated? And then I think you made a point about the, the level of carbon decrease that would be achieved just by this specific bill is very small. Right. But, but is, again, is that an argument against doing anything and
2: taking a leadership position that other states might follow? Well, clearly, I don't believe it's an argument against doing anything because I've supported doing things that make sense. Um, but the governor says that climate change is an existential crisis. Do you know what the word existential means? It means we won't exist, right? So, I mean, that sort of rhetoric is ridiculous. Washington State will exist. How do I know this? I know this because two summers ago, we had a summer that was equivalent to what we would see in the year 2080 under the current models. Does anybody realize that? Did anybody go, oh, my God, look at this summer. It's horrible. It's awful. People are dying in the street. We've seen it. So it doesn't mean it has zero impacts, but it does mean that – Um, it's not an existential crisis.
0: I mean, was this the summer with the most extreme forest fires that we've had, for example? Was that the year you're referring to?
2: There was, absolutely. And heat causes forest fires. But you know what else causes forest fires? When I was at the Department of Natural Resources, we told people constantly, these forests are unhealthy because they are not being managed well, and we are letting trees die. And the environmental community said, let it burn. Letting it burn is the most natural thing. And we said, that's ridiculous. We have It's humans who have caused this problem to create these standing matchsticks, and you're going to get a problem. And the environmental community, when I was at the Department of Natural Resources, said letting it burn is the best thing to do. Fifteen years later, they say, oh, my God, look, this is climate change. right?" So I think they play games. So there's no question that hot summers create more risk of fire, and we saw it. But we also see that as of today, we are ahead of average snowpack. This will be the ninth year out of 11 that we have had above average snowpack. So in the bill, it says we are already seeing loss of snowpack. We're not. We're actually seeing higher snowpack nine of the last 11 years. So again, we shouldn't confuse zero risk with exaggerated risk. And when the governor says things like there is an existential crisis that is intentionally exaggerated, it, it is not backed up by the science or data we're seeing. It doesn't mean we do nothing, but it means you have to do things that make sense.
1: And the campaign for that ballot measure, if that's indeed what what ends up happening, uh, will have probably a lot of money and a lot of political firepower behind it. Uh, Do you think that voters would end up going for it? If the proposal is
2: what I think it is, I would say no, because I think that we have reached a level of taxation that people simply will say no, because I think just because
1: it's a tax. Correct.
0: What, what is the level of tax we that we could expect from that? Have they I, – I don't know that they've rolled it out. They've just said we're ready to launch an initiative. They've been working on things for several years. They threatened to run an initiative at the same time as Initiative 732, and they didn't do it. It's the same group. The governors – or the climate – the carbon tax bill in the legislature now, I think, is set at $12 per metric ton. And then goes up to about 30
2: Right. Would the – Which, just for people, is mm-hmm. it's really easy to translate a metric cost per metric ton into cents per gallon. So $12 a metric ton is $0.12 a gallon. $30 a metric ton is $0.30 a gallon. So that gives you a sense of how much it costs.
0: And is the proposal that's going to be put out from what you know for the initiative, is that just going to be a higher level Carbon tax, or is it going to be a cap-and-trade type plan that, for example, the governor had proposed previously? Or what do, you, what, is your, what do you know?
2: So what I have heard is is that it would be a higher level carbon tax with, with a lot of spending. This, uh, in the first biennium, the most recent financial statement on the um, analysis of the, of the current bill would be about a billion dollars a biennium. I'm expecting that you would get about a billion dollars a year. Um, from what the environmental community pro- uh, proposed, so it would start at around 20 cents a gallon and go up from there. All the proposals that they have had are something like 20 cents a gallon, or whatever, plus five cents a year, or plus five percent rather a year.
1: Something else that you've written about is uh, municipalities, cities, setting goals and trying to take action on climate change and environmental. Uh, environmentally friendly policies. Seattle has lofty uh, environmental goals. Is Seattle meeting its goals? Seattle is not meeting its goals. It
2: first set, I mean, Mayor Nichols um, in 2005 was very upset with um, President Bush for not signing the Kyoto Protocol, which would set targets uh, for 2012. And so he started a group called the U.S. Conference of Mayors Climate Protection Agreement, about 1,000 cities Nationwide, almost 40 cities in Washington state signed up to that and said, "We're going to meet the Kyoto targets by 2012." So 2012 came around. Um, because I have a long memory and I'm vindictive, I called those um, cities and said, "Hey, you signed this U.S. climate, you know, protection agreement in 2005. How are you doing?" Two thirds of the city says, "I don't know what the hell you're talking about." Um, so they didn't do it. The other third had done it. But none of them had made it, including the city of Seattle, according to its own reports. Their response was, That's okay. We're going to meet the next one. Um, And so that's what you see now. You see Mayor Bloomberg sort of leading the charge now nationwide, not just in Seattle. And none of those cities either met the targets or are on track to meet those
1: targets. And I know, I think there's a a review out from the new mayoral administration in Seattle uh, and the city council, the Mayor Jenny Durkin, the city council soon this spring taking a look at. how the city might uh, meet the Paris uh, right. standards. But how much of that is cities like Seattle being hamstrung in terms of what they are able to do by state law, for example? I don't think it's state law. I think it's how do you control a
2: guy like me who lives in the suburbs and drives into Seattle? Um, you know, Where do my carbon emissions count? Seattle or, you know, where I live. Um, are you going to tell uh, Amazon and other companies that are building buildings in Seattle not to build them here? Um, no. So I, I, think, I think that's absolutely right. I think they have a very good excuse as to why they can't meet those targets, which is why they shouldn't make them in the first place. That's the problem is, is that it is a political um, insincere claim where they're trying to get credit for the political claim, even though they have no ability to
1: meet the goals. And two specific things that Mayor Durkin has talked about just in the last couple of weeks. She she talked about, I think, both these things uh, at her State of the City address at Rainier Beach High School. Uh, recent one was uh, some kind of a pilot program for greener, more sustainable buildings, and there I think there would be some incentives there. I haven't seen the details. But just to start with, something like 20 buildings, I think. There was, she also held an event recently on electric vehicles, that there are more charging stations being made available in the city. Are either of those two things, programs or initiatives, that you think can make a difference? Yeah,
2: but I I also think, I mean, I can tell you how to make a difference,
1: but I can also, you know, give
2: me an unlimited amount of money and I'll make a difference. The question is how much, we don't have unlimited money, we don't have unlimited resources, so where do you get the most bang for your buck? Electric car charging stations are not a place that you're going to get the most bang for your buck, frankly. Um, there are other things you can do, but really the solutions come from individual. Each individual is going to do something slightly different. So let me give you an example, Car2Go. So Car2Go is a little two-seater cars that you can rent. Um, BMW has a great program now called Reach Now, where they use the same thing but for electric vehicles. Um, The city of Seattle estimates that Car2Go has reduced the number of vehicles that people purchased in the city of Seattle by 9,000. That is not a government program. It is a for-profit industry that allows people to use those cars rather than having to buy their own, take up another parking space, um, and all the costs that are associated with that. Who planned on that, right? What government agency planned on None. Those are where the solutions are coming from. And, and again, these are for-profit organizations that are catering to, to how people live, and you're going to be more successful doing that than imposing regulations. So yes, I mean, can we impose regulations that, at a high cost, reduce carbon emissions? Yes, but there are better ways to do it where you get bigger bang for your buck and that work with people rather than against them.
0: Do you think that this piecemeal approach that we've kind of been talking about, where Washington State is looking at a carbon tax, where California has a cap and trade system, you know, some states have uh, low low carbon fuel standards? is the, is that ideal anyway i mean you don't seem to be a fan of government regulation at all or you know as the most effective means of reducing carbon isn't shouldn't there be a national policy and but you know the prospects for that of course would seem to be
2: hopeless at this point yeah i think look if you, if if we're going to sit around and twiddle our thumbs and tell There's a national policy. I don't think you're going to get a lot done. Look, I I worked for the Department of Natural Resources. Um, You know, I understand from the inside the good things that state agencies and and state workers do. I was one of them. (laughs) And I think we did a lot of good things on forestry. And like I said, I think we raised some alarms about um, forest health that I wish had been heeded years ago. So I'm not anti-government. I'm not state agency. But I think that the the most effective, and a lot of people in state agencies will say that, they simply don't have the information or ability to make these radical changes in the way that you and I do. I know what's best to reduce my environmental impact. And if you give me the tools to do it, then I can do it. I have a little box, um, because I'm a geek. I put a box in my electrical box at home that that can tell me on my phone right now exactly how many watts my house is using. So I looked at that and I realized, holy cow, I'm using a lot of electricity for my kitchen lights. So I swapped them out to LEDs and I went from six hundred watts to one hundred watts every time I turned them on. I have a nest thermostat. My nest thermostat uses artificial intelligence to figure out when, you know, I'm home and not home and use less electricity. Those things are what's saving me money. Not I don't have to rely on somebody in Seattle or Olympia or Washington, D.C. And people in Seattle and Washington, Olympia, um, they don't want to tell me what to do, right? They, they say, I don't know. That's where we're going to get real environmental benefit. One of my favorite quotes is from a guy named Muhammad Yunus who won the two, 2006 Nobel Prize in economics. He says, when I see a problem, I don't wait for government. I start a business. You're seeing a lot of great ideas. for doing more with less to help the environment. From business, from technology, that's the work that I'm focused on. I think it's going to be more effective. If you could have a national policy, though, would it be a nation, national carbon tax? Simple and transparent is the best way to go, right? Yeah. Give people simple and transparent signals, and then they will figure out what works best for them. And with the technology and options that we have now, um, people are able to adjust.
0: Not everybody. One of the but, things. But that but
2: I, but with the price signal
0: that the government can impose to to move it in the right direction. I mean, we have, right? you know. Miles per gallon standards, things like that have made a big difference. You wouldn't have necessarily just had industry doing it on its own, would
2: you? Well, but... But a perfect example of that is is that California mandated a certain percentage of electric vehicles be sold in the state in the 1990s. There's a whole documentary called Who Killed the Electric Car that's all about why it didn't happen. I'll tell you why it didn't happen. Technology. The technology wasn't there. But what technology was there was a hybrid. So Toyota and Honda recognized that they could sell hybrids to people who wanted um, fuel-efficient vehicles that helped the environment. Politicians didn't mandate that. They didn't know what the heck a hybrid was. And now a Prius, right, is essentially the symbol of the environmental movement. But it didn't come out of the government process that so many environmentalists say is what we need. It came out of business. So that's where you get it. So if you're going to do government, you have to be very careful. But a simple and transparent price is the best way to go, not regulation. I mean, it's kind of
0: interesting. You just obviously disagree probably a lot with our last week's guest, and yet um, the Sideline Institute was actually fairly uh, you know didn't have a huge problem, I don't think, with Initiative seven thirty two, for example, in the way that a lot of the environmental community That's true. They did. weren't they weren't as bad as others. They certainly. did a lot of research and said, you know, even the revenue neutral part that got criticized for not being revenue neutral in the long run right. would have been pretty good. But, but so again, maybe maybe some some uh, some places where groups can, can agree and achieve a policy that could get some widespread support in my fantasy future world,
2: <laughs> right? I, I like Sightline. I, I talk to them from time to time. I think they're very thoughtful. Um, in the past, I've actually sent things over to them um, before I publish them to say, all right, uh, before I make a fool out of myself in public, can you tell me uh, what's right and wrong about this? Um, so I and they and they gave me good edits, and they gave me good critiques, very thoughtful. Um, so I like them. I wouldn't do that with other groups, but um, I did think that they were supportive of a revenue neutral carbon tax, but I think they were afraid to say it, and that's what frustrated me about them is that if you asked them behind closed doors, I think they would have said yes, this is good, but they didn't say it in public.
1: Interesting. Well, thanks for talking with us about this today. And we'll be watching what happens in the legislature and then potentially what happens after the legislature. Thank you for having me on.
0: That's all for episode 71 of the Overcast. Thanks to our guest, Todd Myers with the Washington Policy Center. Thanks again to KNKX for having us in their Belltown studios to record.
1: And if you support the quality local journalism that we do uh, that makes this podcast possible, please go to SeattleTimes.com backslash support to subscribe. Thanks for listening. And you can give us feedback on Twitter at dbeekman at Jim underscore Bruner. You can email us at SeattleTimesOvercast at gmail.com. Drop us a review on iTunes. That's where you can hear the podcast uh, as well as on Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, pretty much everywhere you get your podcasts.
0: And until next week, Have a cloudy day.